going to jump right into it. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're heading this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 16. And what we're, what we're jumping into this week and next is talking about the issues of racial reconciliation. We're just kind of putting our toe in the water, if you will, of this conversation. But I do believe pastorally um, that we need to do more. We need to do more to create conversation around this particular topic. There are things that we can grow in. There are things that we can learn. I love uh, the multicultural aspects of our church, and yet I think there are ways that we can grow. We can grow in multiculturalism, how it's expressed within our church family, but it begins specifically by looking to God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16 is what I'm going to read this morning. We're going to be considering the surrounding context as well, but let's read together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. The apostle Paul, writing to the churches in Ephesus, he writes this. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both, speaking of Jew and Gentile, one. He has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. Here, here, here's the words that I really want you to see. To create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, what does he do? He kills the hostility. He kills the hostility. This morning, we are jumping into this topic, specifically looking then to God's vision for his church. The book of Ephesus has uh, or Ephesians, has been considered the constitutional document of the New Testament church. So if you want to get a handle on what church is, oftentimes you're pointed to the book of Ephesians because the Ephesians is, is both the doctrine and the function of the New Testament church. So you'll see in chapters 1 through 3, what Paul does is he outlines the doctrine, the orthodoxy, right, of the church. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he gets into the function or the orthopraxy of the church. So from doctrine to function, it's all about the church helping us understand kind of the, the foundation work for how we are to understand who we are together in Christ as his church. It's God's vision for his church. Now, of course, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He is facing what is probably the last couple years of his life before being martyred for the sake of Christ. He awaits death in this prison. Death, foreseeing something of God's vision for his church, realized. Paul recognizes that this is such an important thing that he's willing to give up his very life in order to see the church of God established as Christ has purchased it to be. So here, Paul in this prison is writing to the churches. They probably were small house churches in the region of Ephesus, and these churches would have been made up, yes, of both Jew and Greek. How does Paul begin talking about God's vision for his church? He begins chapter 1 with doxology. In other words, he begins with worship. <laughs> he doesn't just begin by saying, okay, here's, here's all the points, as if it's this cold religious experience to think about the church. He says, you can't think about the church without 
bending your knees in worship to see the amazing things that God has done to see something of a New Testament church even realize it begins with doxology. It begins with worship to even begin to consider God's vision for his church. Oh, we have to bend the knee in worship. This is where it begins. And so Paul opens up chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, lavish mercy, lavish grace in Christ shown to us as those who are undeserving. And then Paul goes on in this doxology, this word of praise, he goes on to talk about how before the foundation of the world, God chose us, he set his love on us, he came after us and adopted us as his own children. We didn't belong, but he has done now all the work throughout redemptive history to make us his own, not to just make us Christian, but to make us his own, not to just make us religious, but to make us his very own. We are his family, his children. This is what he's done for us and beyond all of that. Then Paul, as he's praising, says, and he's poured out his spirit. <laughs> he's given us his very spirit, who is, as he says, the guarantee of the internal inheritance that is ours in Christ. Incredible. This is where God's vision for his church begins. It begins on our knees in, pra in praise to God for who he is and what he's done. But then chapter two, it's almost like it gets even better. Paul is stepping in to now talking about the doctrine, helping us understand just what the church is. And he begins with the individual and he says, do you remember you were dead in your sins? Just as we saw from Titus. Remember what it was like. And so he begins to talk about our condition without Christ. And our condition is that we were dead in our sins. We were spiritually flatlined. We were corpses unable to bring any kind of life to ourselves. Just side note, think about the world right now. We are constantly trying to bring life to what is division and hardship and death. So it's my political view that it's going to win the day. It's this political strategy. It's this idea, th these ideologies that are going to win the day. No. Paul says you were dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. There's nothing in you that can bring about the life that you hunger for. And he says then, after talking about how dead we are in our trespasses, flatlined, he interrupts that description with this incredible contrasting con uh, conjunction saying, but God. So in all of our deadness, now God arrives and he interrupts our death. And he interrupts our death with lavish mercy where he comes and loves us even while we were yet dead in our sins. He comes and sets his love on us to make us alive in Christ. This is what... This is what God has done for us. In our death, he comes after us and imposes upon us the saving grace of Jesus Christ. All so that, verse 10, we might be his masterpiece. He's still shaping us. He's still working on us. He's still making us what we are to be in Christ. He's making us into this workmanship. We are something of his creative masterpiece, his, his saving work in all its dimensions being brought into our lives in such a way that as we live out this salvation, there's something of the beauty of God's grace uniquely being put on display through us. And God said, and Paul says specifically that God has prepared good works for us to walk in. He's planned it all like there's opportunities all around you for the creative masterpiece that you are of his grace and to shine forth in its many different ways for the good of others. It's good works that he has prepared before the foundation of the world. God had all this in plan. 
for us to know, to enjoy, to participate in. So there's the individual, but then, of course, the church is not made up of just an individual. The church takes on a corporate dimension. So from verse 10 of chapter 2 to verse 11, there's a change, a, a, a change of perspective. He's going from the individual work that God has done in us now to the corporate dimension. And herein we see something of God's vision for his church. Verse 11, Paul begins to step into what is the real life, real time racial tensions of the day. The church in Ephesus, these little small house churches located throughout the city and probably beyond the city, there were real racial tensions that went deep. And Paul states then in verse 14, he describes these racial tensions with this particular kind of description. He refers to the racial tension as a dividing wall of hostility. It's no joke, like he's using big language to speak of the intense racial fraction between Jews and Gentiles. Now, here, here's the point by using this word, the dividing wall of hostility. The Bible's clear that God's intention was to use the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, to bring about something of blessing to the Gentiles, right? God gave the Jewish people specific covenants, specific promises. That was something in which God chose the Jewish people out of the other ethne, the other nations, to say, hey, I'm going to set my favor upon you, but in setting my favor upon you, you are to be a blessing to the nations to the ethne, to the ethnicities of the world, right? So God made promises, covenants to Abraham. He made promises to, to Moses, and, and on the story goes. But instead of God's people recognizing that they have been blessed to be a blessing to the nations, instead what they, they, they did is they perverted God's blessing and actually said, well, we must be something superior to that of the Gentiles because God has chosen us. We get to carry the promises, and therefore we must carry some greater importance than the rest of the ethne of the world. They were blessed to be a blessing, but they utilized their blessing as some sense of a perverted sense of superiority over all other ethnicities. And as time went by throughout the Old Testament, we eventually have Herod who is rebuilding the temple. And as he rebuilds the temple, he builds it so that there are these particular courts, these walls that divide a Jew from Gentile, dividing walls. And as archaeologists have found on that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, chiseled into the wall is this statement, no Gentile may enter. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. In other words, it's to say, Gentile, if you step, step a foot past this particular wall, you will die. You will lose your life. This is the hostility. This is the division that Paul is pointing out. And Paul Paul is not just speaking of these things from a distance. In Acts chapter 21, Paul actually goes into the temple, and as he goes into the temple, he passes that dividing wall, and people think that he's a Gentile, and so what ends up happening is they grab him, they pull him out into the streets, and they intend to beat him to death before Roman guards come and save him from death. In other words, Paul recognized, he was Jewish, right? But Paul recognizes this dividing wall of hostility. This was vibrant racial tensions of the day. This idea, this dividing wall of hostility uniquely pictures the thick tensions that were present between Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, Paul states then, with all of this tension, he states that, verse 14, who's torn down this dividing wall? But Christ 
Christ has come to tear down the hostility. He, he's come to take down the dividing wall. And the question that, okay, how has he done this? Well, it's been through his flesh. The cross is a breakdown. It should be a breakdown of the hostility, the racial tensions that people feel towards one another. Christ has torn down this dividing wall through what he's accomplished at the cross. But expressly then, verse 16, how has he done this? By abolishing the law. In other words, Paul is saying, uh, there should be no more racial tensions. <laughs> Why? Because Christ has done away with the law. You may sit back and say, okay, what, is, what does that mean? Well, again, the law provided the stipulations for the Jewish people. The law was part of what the Jewish people took pride in, thinking that they were something greater than the Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus has perfectly satisfied the Old Testament. He's perfectly satisfied all the regulations that one might have to go through in order to come into the temple and know something of God's presence. He's become the perfect priest for us. He's become the perfect sacrifices. All the regulations in Christ have been torn down. Therefore, the Jews, the Hebrews, you have no standing to even have some sense of perverted superiority over the next person. Christ has done away with it all. He's satisfied all the rules and regulations that went into play in the Old Testament. Now, it's Jew and Gentile alike who have complete open access to God. Why? Because Christ has Come and through his flesh, he has torn down the dividing wall, giving all open access freely to come into the presence of God. This is what Christ has done. He's torn down the wall of hostility. But notice, we're getting more closely to God's vision for his church. Verse 16, he's abolished the law that he might create in himself one new Man, in place of the two, where you have your racial tensions and divide, Jesus is saying, no, I've come to bring about a people who are one, one new man, so bringing peace to all the racial divides. What is this? One new man. This, this is, we could say, God's vision for his church. One new man. When God anticipated what the New Testament church would look like, what we would look like on a local level, his, his idea for us is this, that we would be one new man. What, what does this mean? What does one new man actually mean in context here? To be one is to be one unit. It is to be complementary parts of a necessary whole such that you can no longer comprehend it as being two or multiple parts. That makes sense, right? It's to be complementary parts of a whole such that you can no longer actually comprehend it as being two or multiple parts. It's come together, it shares in this unity in such a way that you have to stand back and say, it's one. It's many, but oh wow, it's one. It carries something of a profound unity to it. The church is one unified unit. Let me step on the toes a little bit. God's vision for his church does not, it can't even comprehend what our awful history has created as black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches, Asian churches. When God intended to design the church, he tore down all those barriers in such a way that he says, no, all different parts are going to be unified as one. There is not to be a black church. There is not to be a white church. There is not to be an Asian church. There is not to be a Hispanic church. So Paul illustrates this oneness. Like, how are we to think about this one? He refers to the church, God's vision for his church, this unity, this oneness, as, verse 16, a body. Like, when you think about your body, you don't say, this is the body of the hand. 
No, the hand is not some dominating identity. It's a part. It's necessary. I need my hand, right? But it's not seen in itself. It's seen in the whole. It still stands unique. It's like no other body part, right? But it's seen as the whole. The whole is not defined by the part. No, this is the body made up of many heart parts, right? So Paul is saying, verse 16, oh, this oneness, this unity, it is like a body. Or verse 19, a little further that we didn't get into reading, Paul will actually say it's a family. <laughs> we were just talking earlier, you know. The beauty of families that have multi-ethnicity represented, it's something beautiful. There is a oneness there that is different from how the world may view things, but something beautiful. And God's saying, this is my intention for my family. This is my intention for my church, right? Members of a household where no one person sets the identity for the whole, no, it's a family, right? It's a full unit, a household, and it's not our household, it is God's household, right? a family, members of a household, or Paul will describe this incredible unity, this oneness of many parts as being a temple structure, right? You think about a building, a building is built with blocks, right? And so Paul's vision for the church, as he's describing it here, God's vision for the church, is like every block represents a person who is resting on another block and supporting the one over them, right? It's both that the individual rests upon and supports the community. That's the idea. As we all then are resting in and are supported in the cornerstone, namely Christ, right? So it's all these necessary pieces of the whole as we are firmly placed upon Christ. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He is the one who unifies us together. We are one. God's vision for his church is that we would be one. You see, the church can't be defined by its parts, but it also doesn't lose its diversity and its oneness. Right? Follow that? It can't be defined by a certain part, but it also can't lose its diversity and its oneness. In other words, we don't stop being culturally who we are, ethnically who we are as a part of the church. We actually then are responsible to find ways to ensure that multiculturalism is invited and realized. Amen. Invited and realized, that it actually has a place and it's opened up. We're, we're gonna create opportunity for it. The church is, we could say it this way, the church is not supposed to be whitewashed in its forms, in its styles, right? Church is supposed to be multicultural and, and, and therein invite the differences and see those differences even realized amidst our oneness as, those, as that diversity then would accord with Christ. So our multiculturalism is how God created us and wired us to be together for his glory. This was his vision for the church. We are to be one. But then he says, we are to be one new man. The word new uh, is not like saying, hey, I got a new car. Uh, it's not like saying I got a new phone last week, right? It's not as though it's some, a better form of a previous thing that we already know, right? Um, this is where I lose my man card. Uh, been watching When Calls the Heart with, with Jody and the kids, right? Hallmark special, you know, and, and, and so it's set like early 1900s, Canada, West Canada, you know, frontier and all this kind of stuff. And so like when the first Model T rolls up, you know, everyone's like, whoa, what, what is this? How do you, you know, they're trying to drive it and they're driving it into things and whatnot. And so it's brand new. Never seen one of those before, right? Or when the first phone line comes into the town, the whole town comes out to hear the first you know, ring 
take place. And it's, whoa, this is incredible. You know, we got this new phone line. Never seen this before. This one new man is not just some sort of upgrade from a previous thing that we've already known. It's completely new. Never seen this before. When Jesus showed up, when he gave of his life, when he was raised again, when the spirit was poured out, something new began. Something new. No division between Jew and Gentile anymore. And it's the beauty of Acts chapter 2 where suddenly the Spirit is poured out and they're speaking in tongues. And what's the whole point of Pentecost is that people from all over the place have gathered into Jerusalem and now they're hearing, hearing in their own language, in their own ethnicity, they're hearing what is happening, that praise is being given to God, and it begins then. The New Testament church begins as a multicultural community. It's incredible. Thousands coming to faith in Jesus. A multicultural. This is new. This is not something that historically we've seen, although it's been anticipated. Who is Abraham? God says, you are going to be the father not just of the Hebrew people. You're going to be the father of many nations. Through you, I'm going to do a work so that all the nations are brought in to this family. You're going to be the father. You're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to do an incredible work through you. He'll say to Moses, right? He'll say to Moses, I'm going to make my people a kingdom of priests. And you may think, well, that's nothing too unique. Oh, yes, the whole scope of that is that God's people would be priests, that they would mediate something of God's presence to the nations, to the ethne, to the ethnicities of the world, so that they might say, your God is awesome, we got to get in with him. This was always anticipated in the Old Testament. It was that this blessing that was for the Jews would be global in scope, that all ethnicities, all nations would gather together in one new man, in one new family, right? So while this is new, this has been anticipated throughout all of Scripture, even such, I I just love the language of this, Isaiah 56, I believe it's verse 7, Right, where it talks about God's envisioning what his people are to be one day, and he calls them a house of prayer for all nations. Again, that word is ethne, for all ethnicities. My house is going to be a hangout place for people to come, enjoy one another, pray to me, and be for all nations. No dividing wall. No people divided according to ethnicity, no, they're going to be unified in me. This is a new work that I am doing, is what God is saying. The church is to be one new, finally, man. The idea of being one new man is that we are a new humanity. We were in Adam, one human race with various divided ethnicities, but now there is a new humanity culturally and ethnically, yes, diverse, but spiritually bound together by a common spirit, namely the spirit of Christ. That's why Paul will state in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager, be looking for it, be looking for opportunities to maintain this oneness, this unity that you have in the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying what you have together in Christ is this bond by the Spirit of God that transcends all cultural and DNA, like family affiliation. It is something that goes beyond all of that. It does not take those things away, but it goes beyond that. We have a greater bond in the Spirit, and therefore Paul warns us when he gets into the functional stuff of the church, he says, oh, maintain what the Spirit has given to you, because Christ has purchased it for you. 
How do you best honor your king? How do you best honor the one who's gone to that cross for you? It is to look at your brothers and sisters in Christ, although you may be different in your ethnicity, and say we share together in a common bond the spirit, the one who then enables compassion, enables consideration, the one who actually gives us the wisdom in how to create room for multi-ethnic expression within the church. This is what... Paul is saying when he says, you're one new man in Christ. We are bound together in the spirit of Christ. We are unified in him. This is what makes the church a new kind of humanity. What makes the church a new kind of humanity is not that we all fit a certain form or shape. It's not that we whitewash the church. Although historically that's been done, I'm going to get to that in a moment. Right? What makes the church this new man is that it stands unique to anything that the world could offer. That's what our, na- it's what our nation, it's what the people of this world are trying to figure out. How do we get along? And the only way we can get along is seems to just create more friction and hardship. Right? But what this new man is, is that we are bound together in the Spirit. The Spirit then is enabling, he's working for our good so that the unity of this diversity might be enjoyed, might be realized in such distinction to the things of the world. Those in Christ, this new humanity, is to stand so distinct from the reality of this world. Where, where the world might say, well, we're going to tolerate one another as, as, as long as kind of you stay in your place and I stay in my place. Jesus people say this, we will love one another because we actually need one another's diversity and difference. Don't you remember Christ actually saying, this is how the world will know that you follow me, by your love for one another. This is one of the ways that this humanity is so distinct. This new man is so distinct from the rest of the world. There is a strange, wonderful, blessed harmony in the midst of incredible diversity. Where the world can't find the way to reconcile. Oh, it's Christ, as the text says, who has become our peace, our shalom. He has reconciled us to God and to one another so that as we gather together in all our diversity, there's something to be cherished. There's there's something of God's grace in all our diverse ethnicity that is to be sought out like a treasure. Like where's the treasure at in your life? There's, There's places that we get to explore and make room for so that the expression of these ethnicities all resounds in this glorious, manifold, diverse praise to God. It's the way it's meant to be. This is God's vision for his church. One new man. All right, let's get to some practicals. You ready? This, this is where for uh, maybe some you'd be like, all right, Dan, you're stepping off the edge. I don't think so. Um, but here we go. I'm going to speak directly to us Caucasians, at least for the first point. Um, in order to see something of God's vision for his church realized, I think it's very important for us white folk to get to know our whiteness. To get to know our whiteness. You may say, okay, now you're getting, getting strange. Um, what, am I, what do I mean by this? For most of us as white folks, we... Perhaps, perhaps, it's not all the time the case, but most of us have grown up in predominantly white contexts. And that's, that's nothing to feel guilty about. Um, none of this is to feel necessarily guilty about. But growing up in a predominantly white context, we tend, as 
the white is the majority, even within America, this nation, it's very easily uh, uh, the case that we don't even recognize our whiteness. In other words, if someone would come up to you and say, like, what, what, is, what does it mean to be white? I don't know about you, but I have no way of answering that question. I don't see myself that way. I don't identify myself that way. There's, there, there's just, like, I don't even think about it. I don't think about my whiteness. Whereas minorities in this nation have to think about their ethnicity in a whole different way, right? And so when you would ask them, hey, what does it mean for, for, for you to be black or brown or whatever it is, th there's going to be answers to that. It's part of our identity, our understanding, because I've had to think about it in a predominantly white context and culture, right? So it's important for whites to recognize the fact that we live in a predominantly white culture. And by the way, this is, this is what sociologists would, would refer to as just uh, majority um, normalcy, like normativity, right? It's where, like, whether, if you're in an Indian culture, the same thing is true. Like, they don't tend to recognize their own culture. Why? Because it's just the norm. It's who they are. And so, once again, it's not to feel guilty about these things. It's just to recognize the reality of it, that... In this nation, it is a predominantly white nation, and therefore, there's normativity that's represented in this culture in terms of uh, white culture being represented. And so you, you get down to the practical stuff of simply, like, Band-Aids. What color are they? Caucasian white, right? There's, there's a norm that's there. Again, it's nothing to feel guilty about but it's to recognize our whiteness and our influence within this culture. So whether it's Band-Aid, or you go to the old, uh, you know, this has been tossed out there plenty of times before, but even the, the flesh-colored crayon, what color is that? Caucasian white, right? You know, for, for many of us, we don't recognize all these subtleties, right? Uh, in the same way that growing up as a left-handed person uh, if you're a right-handed person, you haven't had an awareness of the challenges that a left-handed person goes through. Mm -hmm. From the day I entered into kindergarten, there are those ridiculous desks. You all, right-handed folks, you had that nice little leaning thing. You could just rest your right hand as you would write. Nice, support, wonderful. As a left-handed person, I'm turning completely to the side to get my elbow up. By the way, I didn't want to smear the ink, right, or the, the pencil, and so you're, you're reaching around. So I had to, like, face the, the aisle rather than facing the, 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 the front of the classroom because, well, I'm a left-handed person living in a right-hand world. And then, of course, I mean, you know, then at craft time, get your scissors out. Have you ever tried, like, any left-handers in here? All right. Yes. All right, so in, in real, I, I hated scissors. Like, even as a young child, I'm learning to actually cut with my right hand. Why? Because the stupid contours of the little holes in the scissors would get stuck in my left hand, and you, you couldn't, you couldn't cut. You're just going like this, and the paper's folding, 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 folding. Right? So you're learning the opposite hand. Just last week, I'm working on a project in the backyard and I'm using a saw to cut a, a board. And I can't see where the actual blade lines up with the, the line in the board. And it, it strikes me. Oh, if I'd put it in my right, there it is. Like, you can see, right? Why? Because the stupid tool was made for right-handed folks, right? So the same way that, like, you may not recognize it as a right-handed person, all the challenges that go into being a left-handed person, the same is true for a predominantly white context where you don't, you don't recognize your whiteness in all the subtle ways in which it influences culture and normalcy in this nation. And so, like, again, we don't say, oh, feel guilty about it. But the idea is to be aware. How can you actually participate in God's vision for, your, for his church, right? 
if you don't have an awareness for how your culture is brought to bear? How do you create space for multicultural if you're not even aware of the culture that you're bringing, right? And all the subtleties that might be there. And it was weird even, um, it was a great learning experience for us, just to be straight. Jabari spending a couple years with us almost. Wonderful experience. It showed us so, so much, like, yeah, we, we, we have to think about things differently all the way down to the, you know, I'm sitting there reading, a, reading him a book. It's a bunch of white kids. Where's the books with the black boys, right? Where's the princess dolls for the young little princess, black princesses that we have, right? Like, where, where is it? And, and, and so you recognize, yeah, like white majority culture is having incredible influences, and we, we don't think about it, but all the minorities have to think about it, right? So it's simply to say, be aware. Be aware of your whiteness where you can, and be understanding for crying out loud, right? Because within a white culture, we have baggage of history. So it's not just these subtleties, it's plenty more that goes into all the frustrations and the hurt that our black brothers and sisters in Christ feel. And so we have to, as majority culture, at least be aware of our whiteness. Second, I would say this, for, for all of us in some sense, get to know your, our history, right? When, when it comes down to it, uh, I spent uh, about seven, eight years growing up in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, we would take field trips to Jamestown. So there we would go. We would see the, you know, the old triangle Jamestown fort, you know, with the little plateaus in every corner for the cannons and all that kind of stuff, right? So you would, you, you would go, you would visit. They would even have like Native American huts, you know, that they'd reproduced and all this kind of stuff. And you'd, you'd walk through the tours and everything. I don't ever remember hearing about 1619. I know they have a plaque that's there. And yet, there's a, it's re, uh, it frustrates me. Okay. Mm. A plaque that will say, okay, here's where the first Africans arrived. And there's an explanation. And, and then there's a plaque a little further. Here's when the first Germans arrived and an explanation. They arrived very differently in 1619. But the history just doesn't seem to capture that all the time. I don't even remember growing up in the South hearing of the travesties that went on early in our nation, even when we were responsible, especially as those who were Virginians, to know something of the establishment of, of the beginnings of our nation and the history therein, right? We need to know our history. Um, if, if, maybe it would be helpful to just throw out a couple things for, for you to consider. Uh, one is short, fairly concise. Uh, Paul, or Phil Vischer's, video on, on YouTube entitled Race in America. Um, and, and again, I know some of you might fall on either extremes to what he would bring to bear. Let's just get to know something of our history. <laughs> the point is not to get just kind of pull one another into different extremes. Let, let's just understand the history once again so that we can be empathetic and have compassion towards one another, to understand something of the frustrations and difficulties that are going on within our own culture. So Phil Vischer's video on YouTube entitled Race in America. He's the old Veggie Tales guy, I believe it is, right? Um, who outline, he just goes fact after fact after fact after fact, and, and his call is not to get a bunch of political momentum move in one direction or the other. He just ends the whole thing by saying, should we not just care? Can we not just have compassion? That's the point. So Phil Vischer's, it does kind of a run through of American history that's very helpful, but then uh, the other uh, more recent uh, thing that I've been working through is The Color of Compromise uh, by Jamar Tisby. Uh, it's actually on Amazon Prime. 
Uh, it's kind of a documentary, but what it does is it focuses more specifically on the history of the church. And it actually shows where the church failed on numerous accounts. Numerous accounts. Once again, the whole point is so that we would have an awareness, right? Even though we're preaching this truth, so did they a few centuries ago. And through time, they used this to actually justify their prejudice. So, it has to then help us. We have to know our history so that even in the the moment right now, we can ensure that in some way we're not making the same mistakes and in some way we're understanding the frustrations that are present. We can have a level of compassion. So those are a few um, resources that I'd just say, may, they'd be super helpful in framing something of our history as a nation. Finally then, and this is just obvious, and then once again, as I began, I said we're just sticking our toe into the water of the conversations here, right? But finally, I just want to end. I know these points are not as full as they could be. We're sticking our foot into the water, just beginning the conversation. But we have to end then with the practical of that we must keep Christ at the center. We must keep Christ at the center. Let's not forget what Paul, how Paul instructed us from this text. Let's not forget God's vision for his church, that Christ has become our peace. He is our peace. He is the one who gives, he tears down everything, who actually gives us something of the ability to stare our whiteness in the face, if that's, if that's for you, or even consider our own history and the injustices that have gone on, or consider our own place and time here in this society and seeing the injustices at work even in our We can look at those, we can acknowledge those, we can have conversations, we can continue to move towards the problems. Why? Because Christ stands at the center. He is my peace. I don't have to get worked up about my whiteness or my disagreements with others or their disagreements with me. It's the gospel that keeps me forging forward into the problem to say, we need, we need something of God's grace. We need something of God's mercy brought to bear in what are racial tensions within our society. But let's be clear, it's also in the church. Some of my, some of my dear black friends they said it in the past, and I oh, just kind of always like, oh, man, I don't like it. You know, where they would say, well, the black church exists because the white church existed. Right? So it's not just something in our society that needs care and help. It's something even within the fabric of this blood-bought church, the big C, the broader church, we need this peace. We need the peace that Jesus alone can bring. We need him to, to be the peace. Again, I don't just mean like, okay, he's going to create peace for us. No, he creates peace for us such that we continue to move in towards the problem without being offended and standing back. He actually gives us what we need to keep the conversation rolling to actually press into one another with compassion, with love, because he stands at the center, and his vision for his church will ultimately be one, not my vision for my church or my perceived vision for my church. No, it's Christ. He is our peace. Hallelujah. And this is God's vision for his church, one new man. Um, as we close then, there is like no better thing for us to do. And I know, like, I would love the whole church here to participate in this. But if you're at home, I'd encourage you to grab whatever um, juice and cracker you might have sitting there. Hopefully you prepared uh, for that. But we're going to participate in the Lord's table. Um, and so what, what we're going to do, I'm going to give you at home a second perhaps to go get uh, the elements uh, and we're going to take a moment here to come and grab the elements at the front, and then we'll, we'll take those uh, elements together. So let's take a moment, go ahead and grab the elements, why don't you come forward as well.
it's God's vision for his church, this beautiful one new humanity, one in all of its diversity, new in that there is a strange and wonderful bond in the spirit, and a new humanity that stands so distinct then from the world. When it comes to participating in communion, the idea is to recognize that Christ was broken, that we might be unified. That the cost that he endured was not just, and it's important, I don't even like that word, uh, just, but he died, yes, for our sins. He died to reconcile us to God, but he died so that together we might be reconciled to one another. So Paul will state in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, the cup of blessing, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word body, translators don't know how to translate it. Is it speaking of the body or is it speaking of this body, right? Because at this point, you can't differentiate between the two. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. He's brought us together. We are participating together in Christ. We are representing something of the unity that can only be found in Christ. Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. He's saying, you all partake of Christ. And therefore, in Christ, you become one. And all your diversity and all your differences and all your beauty, right? Your diverse beauty and all your diverse, you become one in him. Because this is what he paid to receive. One new man. Let's take the elements in his name. Take and eat. Father, we honor you. We lift your name. Thank you, Abba, that we stand in your family together as one. Jesus, thank you for the price that you have paid. Thank you that you've torn down the wall of hostility. Thank you that there is peace for us to know together and peace for us to maintain. You've given us a work to do. So God, I pray that in Christ, your vision for your church would be realized, particularly in this local congregation. Thank you for the many parts of the body. We miss being together with one another. We miss the diversity that's represented together. But God, we also want to create space where we can, to see that diversity realized all the more for your glory, for your praise. Christ, may you gain what you died to receive. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
Even for those at home, <clears throat> as we will spend just even next week working through this particular topic, I do, like I invite conversation. Let's, let's talk, let's consider, let's pray. <laughs> so that ultimately what Christ has died to receive, that it might be realized. One new man. By way of benediction, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14 states this. May the grace, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in all our diversity be with you all. Amen. Grace and peace.